Most of my friends at that time were jocks. I played at, you know, sports in high school and stuff. And I had one guy, this very amazingly erudite guy. He was like the uh, president of the chess club and the president of the chemistry club. And I don't have any idea why we got along so well, but we did. We really kind of inspired each other. And one day he said, well, why are you going to get surgery? Why don't you go get acupuncture? And I, this is 1971, I think. And I said, what the hell is acupuncture? And he said, remember the Kung Fu TV series where they stick needles in people? I said, I'm not going to let somebody stick needles in me. He said, oh, yeah. Oh, so you're going like, to let them take a scalpel and carve up your spine. I said, huh, maybe I'll go try that acupuncture stuff, right? And so I did. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. The thing about being self-employed is you don't know if you're going to be paid for your work. You're not sure if you'll bring in enough to make it worth your while, or if you'll be paid in a fashion that is commensurate with your effort, capability, and time. It is possible to invest your time, money, and effort into an enterprise and have it come up with nothing other than debt, disappointment, and despair. That alone is enough to scare off the amateurs. You can't know ahead of time what will work, what will fail, and for sure it often enough has little to do with fairness. You could spend six years of your life and a bunch of someone else's money and barely scratch out a living doing what you consider to be important work while some laid off history teacher hits the jackpot on TikTok doing something silly that make you too embarrassed to show your face in public. It's frustrating when the Facebook channel of yours, even with the heart you put into it, turns out to be a poor investment given the hours and small amount of income it returns while some dude who teaches trans girls how to apply makeup, he drives a bright red Corvette for his efforts. It takes some fortitude to steer your own boat, chart your own course, and navigate toward it. Relying on yourself for your livelihood, it's a kind of hero's adventure. You'll encounter all kinds of obstructions, many of which are internally generated. And it will be tempting to blame the world for that. But that would be a mistake because much of the journey of self-employment is finding out where you've been wrong about the world and wrong about yourself. It's not for the faint of heart. The world rewards what we do in wildly different and incomprehensible ways. You probably will not succeed in your first attempts. And God help you if you do, because too much success early on is asking for the problems that come with hubris and conceit. On the other hand, being self-employed, gaining the capacity of self-reliance in the world, it will show you the value of interconnectedness, teach the value of cooperation beyond that it's a nice idea. It will demand you to find your own measure of success and enoughness. And perhaps, more than anything else, be the motive force behind transforming the limits that you placed on yourself. It's good to get paid well. Now, go figure out how to do that. It helps to keep things simple, both in the business of having a clinic and in the clinic itself. Experience like the way good leather boots wear into your feet, it takes time. 
In this conversation with John Neaters, we discuss how experience and even other jobs we've had that have got nothing to do with acupuncture can help us in our clinical work. Putting your heart into your work, it makes a difference. And we'll be discussing heart health from both Eastern and Western points of view as well. All this and a whole lot more, stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. 
Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. John Neeters, welcome to Geological. Michael, it's so fun to be here. I, uh, I'd heard about your show for a long time, and my wife did an interview with you, and she was just raving about what a great interview viewer you were. And my experience with interviewers is they are just make or break people. So I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, let's see if we can break you. All right. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just, I find our medicine so interesting. It was curiosity that took me to acupuncture school because I'd I'd had it myself. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, I'm like, what the hell is going on with this stuff? I just could not figure it out. It just seems so weird, you know? And uh, I've just been curious about it ever since. And I got to tell you, the other thing, acupuncture, the longer I practice this, the weirder it gets. It is weird. Oh, me too. You know, it's, um, I'll find myself doing, so I, I have several acupuncturists that work with me and one in particular, we work almost a hundred percent of the time together and she scribes for my patients and she'll do a lot of the acupuncture, et cetera. And she'll ask me over time, like, why do you do this particular pattern of points? And I'll say, because it works. And then later on, I'll find, like there was an article that came out in Acupuncture Today about this particular pattern of points that was exactly what I've been doing, except they had a really cool name for it, right? And I don't know how I got there. You know, just over time, you do things and they work on... Almost, I hate to use this term, but it's almost like a magical level. It's like, wow. And I remember, so I got to tell you a little story. So years ago in my doctoral program, I was really blessed because it was the first program for this particular college. And they had the, and I knew that it was going to be good because the president and the vice president of that college were in the program. And so they got the best teachers you could find in China. And one of them, was, my pronunciation is horrific, but Shi Min, who the, the movie 9,000 Needles was made about. He ran the biggest stroke clinic in all of China. Now, thank God I didn't know how famous he was when I was studying with him in clinic, right? And so I remember one day he said, oh, you know, it was really busy. He said, oh, go do these points. And I did. And I said, so why did we do those? And he said, ah, don't worry about it. And so that very, very terse in a kind of older Chinese doctor sort of way. And so then we had our round table where we were doing our reviews. And so I asked him again, I said, so doctor, why did we do that set of points? He goes, sometimes you just put in a needle and it works. And I got to tell you, Michael, that freed up so much energy for me, right? And his point was, trust the needle. The needle is brilliant. The body is brilliant. As long as you do your job of inserting the needle in the right place, doing the proper form of stimulation of the needle, everything else will get done. And I'll tell you, that was so freeing for me to have this brilliant guy say that to me. So, Well, 
you were given permission to trust yourself. Exactly. That was exactly it. Exactly. And to trust the medicine, right? Yes. Yes. I, I've got I've got almost the opposite side of that story. When I was in school, I had this teacher from China, Dr. Xie. Everybody loved Dr. Xie, and she was great. And she'd always say, okay, if, if you're going to do these yin points, be sure to do some yang points to balance them. And for decades, <laughs> not years, decades, I would be doing a treatment and I noticed, oh, I've got a bunch of yin points or a bunch of yang points. And I'd hear Dr. Shea in the back of my mind, like, oh, you got to balance that out, right? And there came a moment when I heard Dr. Shea in the back of my mind, and I looked at what was going on for my patient. And I was, and I was doing a lot of palpatory work. I still do. And everything with palpation felt just fine. And the pulses felt fine. And the room was still. And it was all yin points. And I heard Dr. Shea say, got to put in some yang points. And I, it's like the scaffolding came down. I don't need to put in yang points. Thank you, Dr. Shea. Thanks for your guidance all this time. Yeah. But it's, I got it from here. That's brilliant. That's wonderful. Yes. And isn't it interesting how some of your instructors that you were very close to, how those words will stay in your mind forever? Yes, Absolutely. It's really something, you know, I love hearing you talk about this. It's such an interesting place to start, the weirdness of acupuncture. We talk about cultivation. We talk about growing as practitioners and, you know, the medicine kind of lighting up from inside of us in some way. And, you know, what you just talked about, you use these points. Why did you use those points? You can't even tell me at this point. You probably can't even tell yourself, but you know they work because of experience, all kinds of experience. That, oh, it worked here, it worked there, it worked here, it worked. And, you know, there's this evolutionary process. I think we see it everywhere. Where, I see it in nature for sure. We see it in our practices. Something works, you go, oh, positive signal. Do that again. Oh, that worked. Do that again, right? You just, you double down on what works. You let go of what doesn't. It's a very, who did I hear talk about it? Seth Godin. I think talks about it as the evolutionary ratchet, you know, and over time, these things will get dialed in and we don't even know that we've dialed it in. It just comes through experience and time. Exactly. Yes, exactly. I remember I, uh, I used to do a lot of fertility medicine. I, d I do very little now because it emotionally, it can be a little draining. You know, when you're working with 40 women a month who are trying to get pregnant, obviously having difficulty. And so if 10, 15% get pregnant in any given month, that's a pretty, pretty good job, right? With these difficult cases. But the other 40, 35 to 40 women are going to be crying. And I'm there with them because, you know, we are there on the ride with them much more than, say, a Western fertility physician. I mean, we're on the roller coaster. You know, they're crying. We're doing what we can to be empathetic and to work with them. But it can get a little wearing after a while. So I don't do as much now. But I was doing a class or a, a seminar, actually, with one of my favorite fertility acupuncturists, Jill Blakeway, in, uh, in, in New York. And someone said, oh, can I shadow you? And she got this really funny look on her face. She says, oh, you know, I don't like people to shadow me so much anymore. And the woman said, well, why? She said, it's kind of embarrassing. Every year my herbal medicine 
my supplements, my understanding gets more and more sophisticated, but my acupuncture gets a little bit simpler every year. Over the years, I'm finding spleen six works every time. So why would I pick a different point? You know, it's kind of her point that her repertoire of points actually gets a little smaller over time. Not that she doesn't know how to use every point, but it's just there are points that stand out. And so that was very interesting for me because I was going through the same thing at that point of, oh boy, I don't want anybody to really see the semi, I'm going to call it semi, simple acupuncture formulas that I'm using, right? So anyway, it's, you know, it, all these little awakenings along the way. Mm. Yes, hopefully. That's interesting. I remember when I first got out of acupuncture school and I had a herbal pharmacy, herbs and jars, the whole bit. And I think I had like a hundred and just slightly over a hundred herbs. And I thought, man, at some point when I know a lot, I'm going to have like 300 herbs. It's going to be awesome. Well, as time goes on, I use fewer and fewer. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I understand completely. You know, maybe it's simplicity and, you know, you get kind of effective in a certain way. Maybe it's laziness. I, I don't know. Again, if something works, I don't question it too much. I just use it. Well, you know, and I look back, I think it was Judanshi who uh, said, all I use is one formula, really, right? I lose, use Lu Wei Di Wang Wan. But of course, when I say Lu Wei Di Wang Wan, I don't actually mean Lu Wei Di Wang Wan. I mean the spirit of it. And then from there, he would create not a lot of different formulas, right? And he was brilliant brilliant. You know, it's just a matter of picking the right one. But essentially he had his one core formula that he loved and then he would work from there. And I just thought that was brilliant. It, it makes sense to me. Have you found this as well? You know, you're talking about using point, you know, in a simple way. Well, seemingly simple way. I have found that I end up with personal relationships with certain points. Oh my God. Yes. And I get that with herbs a lot, with formulas. You know, when I'm, it's bad when people are studying with me in a way. It's like, and I'll say, use this formula, use Wan Shaodan. Why? I said, because it is the right personality for this patient, right? And the same with the formulas where you develop this, just, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but it's this incredible relationship with them. Yeah. No, I, I think that's really true. You can read the indications for a point in a book. You can, you can know the basics that you would use on the test. But over time, oh, it kind of does this, or it shows up here. Huh, I didn't expect to see it show up there. And, and then you look again in a similar situation. Oh, look, there it is again. Right? You just put your hands on people and, wow, look at that, lung six. I find I use it all the time. It's very, very curious. Yeah, and I found that there are points that I will start using. Sometimes I know why specifically and sometimes less so. And then sometimes I will go back and look at the indications or the, his the historical usage of it and go, oh, well, of course. Like I was reading a, a lot of stuff uh, that the book on Golden Needle Wong Lei Ting, right? Very famous acupuncturist in China in the early 1900s. And they actually compiled every single treatment that he did in his entire life. He was that highly revered. 
Wow, that's like an AI project. Right, exactly. And one of the things they did is they compiled all of his through and through points where he was combining points, which I like to do. And I saw that he was combining small intestine five with heart seven, right? Going through and catching heart seven from a different angle. And I have found that combination to be so brilliant uh, for certain of my patients, particularly amongst my dementia patients that would do sundowning and walking in the afternoons. You, they would get really agitated. It, but it worked. It was amazing. I'd get great feedback. And then I went back because I, I didn't know a lot, honestly, about lung five. I mean, large intestine five. I mean, I had basics. Wait, large intestine five or small intestine five? Small intestine five. I'm sorry. I mean, you could take large intestine five, but that's a long... That's a long shot. I love pairing large intestine five with lung nine, actually. But small intestine five with heart seven. And when I went back and really did a little deeper study, they talked about it a lot for resolving, essentially, perseverating behavior, Right where people can't drop things. they It's like a dog with a bone. They can't stop wandering. You know, what was so powerful about coupling that point with heart seven to calm the heart and calm the spirit, and then also the perseveration. Because I had my the caregivers actually monitoring like roughly how many steps, and the number of steps uh, was reduced by about two-thirds after we used that combination. And it was like, and so that was kind of going backwards to rediscover why that point was so powerful. And again, that's the magic of our medicine to me. I'm 72. I hope to still be learning for at least another 20 years. I mean, this is impossibly deep, right? It's like, well, as you know, I, I do a lot of functional medicine principles combined with traditional Chinese medicine. I do a lot of labs. And when I go to like the cardiovascular class, when I go to teach that, I have to basically go in and learn all of the Western stuff all over again every time I teach it, because there's always new stuff. You know, there are new labs, there are new tests, there are new diagnoses. Not with Chinese medicine, but with Chinese medicine, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So it's very fascinating to see how these two fit together and how they sometimes don't fit together. Yes. Well, there's that too. We're going to get into the cardiology thing here in a moment because well, that's actually one of the things I really wanted to sit down with you and, and chat about. But before we do, small intestine five, heart seven, I'm just thinking about that. Well, you, you just hooked up the two fire organs for one. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that small intestine is all about sorting clear from turbid and bring that into the heart. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's a combination you could ponder for a bit. You could ponder for a bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I will. And I'm going to use it too. I already got a couple of people I know that uh, probably would benefit from that, including me on a bad day. It's a very gentle combination because it's even less painful for heart seven. So I love that combination. Well, I'll tell you, I had one teacher <laughs> and he said, oh yeah, getting to heart seven, that, that can be a little difficult depending on where the hand is, just go in through heart, just go in through small intestine five. You know, it's just easy. But he never mentioned that they hooked together. Right. You know what? And he was just a clever enough guy. He was probably waiting for me to figure it out. And, it, and it's only taken me 25 years. So thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs>
am not the sharpest tool in the shed. That's why I talk to guys like you. You mentioned something else. Lung nine, large intestine five. You say you like to use that. You know, that actually was not any creation or even an accident of mine. I was reading a lot of information coming out of China at the beginning of COVID and then kind of over the first year. And there was one practitioner from China who said he uses that combination on every COVID patient. And the idea being that where does COVID really strongly affect people? You know, they're finding the virus still in people's intestines 15, 18 months afterwards. And the Chinese, of course, in order to at one point and for certain people to clear them of COVID, you had to do an anal swab, not an oral swab. Oh, my God. Right. In fact, it was a big deal, Michael. I had no idea. This is the first I've heard of it. All right. I got to go in for my anal swab. Oh, my God. They were trying to force the diplomats, U.S. diplomats in China to get anal swabs. And it was kind of a big deal. It didn't last very long. And they said, oh, no. Oh, no, we're not going for that. And so they backed off. But that was kind of their their thought is that this is really in large measure. And with some of the variations, the intestinal stuff was the biggest issue. And then, of course, the lung. And with us, of course, they're, they're paired organs. And so they started using that combination. And I don't use lung nine as often as I might. It's a little inconvenient. And sometimes I'll substitute. But again, by going through large intestine five to lung nine, you avoid easily all the vasculature in there. And so I love that combination. Are you like literally sliding in from the back? Yes, absolutely. I mean, because we forget, you don't, I'm sure, but as new students, we forget that these are not two-dimensional. The body isn't two-dimensional, right? And so you get a lot of new students thinking, well, if I'm going to get this point, I've got to go here. Well, no, there are many points, ways to hit the point. There are some that are simpler and are better proven, but there are lots, any way you get to that point. And that's what I found with lung nine. You could even get there with an anal swab if you had a long enough swab. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, check it out. It didn't last very long, but it was kind of a big deal for a while. <laughs> Do you have any other little uh duets like that that you like to use? Yeah, a few. I like, um, those are my favorites actually, by the way, at this point, I love doing liver three through to kidney one. And again, that's for different reasons, but again, kidney ones can be pretty tender. And I find by going through liver three, that it's an easier way to treat it. And often those points are really nice to treat together. So I use a lot of that, uh, GB 40 to liver, uh, four, I like that. And then from the bladder points through to the kidney points, kidney three, four, five, over to the bladder points, I like those a lot. So those are points I do quite frequently. And then, you know, the the face points for Bell's palsy, et cetera, right? Those that most everybody does. Right. What do you like the uh, gallbladder 40 to uh, liver five for? A liver four. Liver four, sorry. I'm going to tell you why I like it, but, oh gosh, I don't, I don't remember his name. The, uh, the guy that does, he's really well known and I, for some reason his name's up coming to mind, but he does a five element school program and he writes some beautiful, beautiful articles about the lower gallbladder points. 
and uses them in a very powerful way for mental emotional issues. And his explanation is beautiful. Gumenik, Neil Gumenik. And Neil has some great writings on there. In fact, I've copied them and pasted them. And I'll go back and look at them every once in a while. Uh, liver four, I like because it's a little less intense than liver three. I get most of what I get for liver three. And I find that it really combines well with uh, gallbladder 40. There's just something synergistic about that combination. I don't, I, and I honestly don't know if it's because they're on the same level. I don't know what's so brilliant about it, but it's one of my favorites. Well, partly you've got your yin and yang paired organs again coming into play with each other. And, you know, any anytime you start bringing extra influences in like that, it seems to me the body just opens up its communication channels more. It does. And there's a, I do something that I call a modified celestial tuning fork. Again, there's some of the creative, a, a celestial tuning fork, they call it formula. But essentially, it's treating, I'm going to call them the chakras down the front, right? Yin Tong, Ren 22, Ren 17, Ren 12, Ren 4 or 6, right? And then to that, I will add that small intestine 5, heart 7 combination, GB40 and liver uh, 4, and the, the reduction in anxiety and stress and the ability to focus and ground and center is truly astonishing. Like, you know, my wife, Jenny, works with the 49ers football team. And most, you know, they're coming in for all these injuries and for sports performance, but she treats a lot of the management who are just stressed to the max. Before the draft, they may not sleep for a couple of weeks and they'll come in just jangled out and she'll stick them on the, on the bed and do that formula, which I used to do on her. And it's just, she said they would line up every day for that treatment. It just lets them be more conscious and aware and much less um, at the effect of things. So I love that formula. Well, well, this is interesting because I, I heard you describe it. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I can see using the Ren Mai that way. And, and then you talk about what we just discussed, small intestine five and heart seven. I, okay, I, I could see how that would work. And then you mentioned the last two, and I just felt my whole body go, ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the treatment, dude. That's really interesting. I have a couple times. It doesn't happen very often. Like every few months, I will actually forget to needle a patient. It's very rare, but I've been in the room with them. I've talked to them. I've prepped them. And then they want to go to the bathroom, right? And then they'll come back and lay back down. And what happens is in my mind, I've needled them and they're having such a beautiful treatment. And I'm so relaxed. And they must be so relaxed. And then suddenly it's like, did I really needle them? Or is that all in my <laughs> And again, fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. Uh, but it is interesting how it affects my body, right? Yes. Yes. The work that we do also affects us. There's a kind of uh, reverberation that happens. It's one of the things that actually made me finally decide to do acupuncture as a profession is my background was really in uh, internal martial art, contemplation, meditation, et cetera. But I was running a real estate company. 
which it's hard. You know, I had like 50 new agents and 100 agents, and it was like from six in the morning till midnight. It was pretty much just insanity. And so I, I tried to use that as an opportunity to stay grounded and centered and, and breathe, and it was very difficult. <laughs> and so then I had thought about acupuncture for a while. I had a family, so it made it a little difficult to transition. Mm-hmm. How old were you when that happened, when you decided? I was in my 40s. Yeah, early 40s. Now, I had started doing Taiji Qigong herbal medicine in, in my 20s and then started teaching martial arts and actually free fighting and a whole bunch of other, other things like that. In fact, that was one of the things that got me back into, it's so weird, you know, the, the way we go through life and get directed, I'm going to say. And so I had met my first acupuncturist in the early 1970s. I had been a high school athlete. I went to UC Santa Barbara, became a couch potato, didn't do anything for about three months except drink beer and eat, went out for a rousing game of ping pong and blew two, two discs in my back, right? And of course, I was told by numerous doctors that I had to have surgery. Most of my friends at that time were jocks. I played at, you know, sports in high school and stuff. And I had one guy, this very amazingly erudite guy. He was like the uh, president of the chess club and the president of the chemistry club. And I don't have any idea why we got along so well, but we did. We really kind of inspired each other. And one day he said, well, why are you going to get surgery? Why don't you go get acupuncture? And I, this is 1971, I think. And I said, what the hell is acupuncture? And he said, remember the Kung Fu TV series where they stick needles in people? I said, I'm not going to let somebody stick needles in me. He said, oh, yeah. Oh, so you're going to let them take a scalpel and carve up your spine. I said, huh. Maybe I'll go try that acupuncture stuff, right? And so I did. And I remember my very first day with this acupuncturist, it was everything that I admire about a human being. And I said, I'm going to become, I'm going to do martial arts and meditation, and I become a doctor of Chinese medicine. And again, I had a family and three kids, and it just didn't happen at that point. Kind of went through. And then I was teaching free fighting. My teacher was the world martial artist's champion in 1978. And at that point, there now there's a world martial arts championship every weekend. At that point, there were like two in the world. And so he won it. And he did it, he said, to prove that contemplation was the most powerful thing and would make you a great fighter if you, if you wanted to use it that way. And so anyway, so I'm teaching in his school and it's light contact. We're not trying to hurt anybody, but it's just, you know, practicing light contact. And and again, talk about being not the uh, brightest bulb. I had to hear it about 30 times. People would come up at the end of the class. I go, hey, thank you so much. I feel great. I go, and of course, I'd go into my wrap. Oh, yes. Well, you got exercise and you moved around. They go, no, my shoulder hurt. And you hit me like 30 times in my shoulder. And now it feels great. And finally, the bulb went off. And it's like, well, of course, whatever you need to see and be aware of, to hurt somebody is the same thing you need to be aware of to heal somebody because that's where the problem is. you know. And I was hitting them so lightly and touching them so lightly, it ended up being healing. And that's when I said, you know, I've got to go do something with this. And there were a couple of other kind of instigating factors, but I ended up going back and going to acupuncture school. From real estate to acupuncture. Right? Okay. Now I got one more for you. What got me into 
studying Chinese philosophy is that I was a professional poker player in 1970-71. Okay, so 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 after you were a jock and then, you know, kind of a, a beer drinking college student, you get you get into poker. How did you get into poker? Two of my friends, they were jocks, but really bright guys on a simple, simple level, you know, statistics, probabilities not going to be physics majors, but just real sharp guys about life. No, no, but enough probability to play poker. Right. Well, what they did is one of them bought the first book uh, by a guy named Thorpe, and it was uh, on counting cards playing blackjack. So we all got together, went up to Lake Tahoe, which was the closest place that there was a casino at that time, and started counting cards and playing poker. Well, they kept making more and more difficult. And so... Okay, we started wearing disguises, right? Because they would throw you out. And one day, one of the floor men comes up and goes, really? Really? We've got your picture all over the back room. Not one of your disguises has ever worked, and it won't ever work. If you don't get out of here, we're just going to throw you out on your butt, right? And so I walked by the poker table, literally walked by the poker table. And, you know, I played as a kid with my dad and stuff. I bought in and started playing poker. Right. And so then after a while, I started playing in some tournaments and doing you know, higher level games. And I was having a difficult time dealing with the pressure, which, you know, that's kind of the point. And so I bought a copy of Chuangzi, right? And I don't know what got me there, but I bought Chuangzi. Chuangzi on poker. Yeah. And so every time before I'd go down and play poker, I'd sit in a hot bathtub and read Chuangzi. No kidding. And that's kind of what got me into this world of possibility that we call Chinese medicine, Chinese philosophy, et cetera. And so that's kind of how I got in there. I'm hesitant to tell my patients all that stuff. Oh, man. We have this idea that tags along in Chinese medicine about our Ming, our fate, our destiny, right? And I don't know. It just seems to me we we almost turn it into a kind of fetish. You know, it's, ooh, destiny. You know, ooh, 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 ooh. My experience of destiny is I usually meet it on the road that I take to avoid it. Like, oh, yeah, this thing here. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Fuck that. I'm going over here. Well, okay, now I'm, <laughs> yeah, you just chose a path, dude. Um, or the thing that comes up, you hear something. And you think, wow, that's a, that's a good idea. I'm going to go look at that. Your life changes. You're getting thrown out of a damn casino. You walk by the poker table. Hmm. Maybe I should try that. Right? Add a little drongza. <laughs> Shake and stir. Rinse, repeat. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of the path. And then finally, uh, you know, there were a few other things, obviously, that happened on the way. But I ended up, and you know, there is not a day, now that you mention it, I don't really think this, that... Being an acupuncturist, or which I, I don't really like that term because what we do is so much bigger than that. It includes acupuncture, but it's you know certainly an enormous body of work that we do that includes acupuncture. There's never a day that I question that it's the right thing to do. And I will tell students, you know, going to school, I said, you know, there has not been a single day that I have questioned or regretted that this was the right thing. Now, if you get into it, you're six months into it, doesn't seem right. Well, it might not be. But I said, for me, man, it is never, this is, 
it feels like I've been doing this for generations, right? That's what it feels like in my heart. It's like, yes, what else would I do? Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do Channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Well, it sounds like you've had a quirky way that you've unfolded your life. That's a very polite way to put it, Michael. <laughs> I'm big on quirkiness. I think quirkiness is, you know, if you're lucky, you've got a bit of a quirky life because it means your life is interesting and you've opened your mind enough to incorporate some new perspectives. So I, I, I see it as very beneficial sort of spirit opening, you know, thing to have in your life. Well, I don't think there's any of those things that I mentioned that I have done, professions, uh, et cetera, that hasn't, doesn't still come into play in a positive way, right? It's still, they're all things that are still important and relevant as learning experiences. Absolutely. I don't think we throw anything away. I spent 10 years in high tech prior to diving into acupuncture school. And when I left, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm done with high tech, right? But I've got a podcast. Guess what? And here you are. Here I am. <laughs> Damn thing tags along. Yeah. Well, for years, I had a group of patients that would come in. They were real estate brokers. And I swear they only came to, and I used to do training all over the United States uh, for real estate brokers. And I swear they only came in to pay me for my real estate advice. But, you know. I was able to add a few other things with it. That was fine with me. There you go. Yeah. That's fabulous. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I, I want to switch the conversation just a little bit. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is I see that you're doing some courses on cardiology. Right. And, you know, cardiology is a big thing. I mean, most of us, if we live long enough, we're going we're gonna to have to be a little bit worried about how our ticker is working. Because it's one of the big things that wears out, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you just look statistically at how things are. Yeah. And it seems like we don't have a whole lot in our medicine that really looks at heart health. I mean, we got points in books that talk about this or that. Earlier, you talked about working with uh, fertility. That's a big thing in our profession. Beauty treatments are huge right now. Digestion is big, right? There's a lot of things we use acupuncture for to help with that. But cardiology, 
we don't hear so much about that. So what what took you down that particular path? Well, a couple things. One, I've had heart problems since my 40s, okay? Uh, late 30s, probably. And well-controlled, uh, for the most part, with some Chinese herbal formulas, some acupuncture. A few years ago, I was president of an acupuncture college and tried to run my clinic and you name it. And I just got incredibly grossly overstressed. And then I had some more serious heart problems. And so I had to sit down and really take a look at cardiovascular issues for myself, right? I mean, I liked my doctors. I think they're very bright people. Uh, even then, but certainly looking back on it, I really don't think they did a great job. I mean, you know, they kind of did what they did, but there was so much more that they could have done. Just basic diagnostic tests. They ran really expensive diagnostic tests, right? 10 grand a pop, but they didn't run $6 blood tests that they should have been running. What kind of blood tests should they have been running? What are... Oh, like for me, I have gout, okay? And my feet, both of them are pretty arthritic, and I can control it now by doing the right things to avoid gout. I also had kidney stones a few years ago, which got, fortunately, I'm not having any for a few years, again, since I treated myself. But they should be testing my uric acid th at least every three months. Alexander Haig, a doctor from Scotland in, I believe, 1892, wrote a book on uric acid. And he essentially said that uric acid is the worst thing that you could have that we could test for. He said it's the cause, at least uh, it's concomitant with, but probably the cause of high blood pressure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke, etc. Nobody ever was able to disprove anything that he said, and but everybody forgot about it. And lately, Perlmutter. You've probably seen Perlmutter. He wrote Grain Brain. and Oh, yeah. David Perlmutter, the, uh, the neurologist. Yes. And so he recently wrote a book called Drop Acid. <laughs> like, right? <laughs> and like his first sentence is, if you're a child of the 60s and you're looking at this might be the wrong book for you. But the idea being, he went back to Haig's work and then did his own work. And I tell you, if you listen, and I have got it, I have it hardcover, but I also have an audible copy. And it's one of those books, although it's written for a combination lay people and practitioner, I can't get through more than two or three pages without just having to pull my car over and take notes. It's the amount of information in there that is so relative and pertinent for us. This is Perlmutter's book. Perlmutter's book. And so that was one of the things that inspired me. It's like, you've got this basic I think it's $6, $6 test, right? That you can do as an add-on to CBC, chemistry tests, et cetera, that gives you so much information. It is mind-blowing. And he pointed out that if you have elevated uric acid, losing weight is nearly impossible because it's a survival, it's one of those genes, kind of like um, sickle cell, which became prominent in certain areas of Africa because it helped pro, uh, protect against malaria, death from malaria. And so overall, it's a bad thing, but in that region where malaria is endemic, it's a lifesaver. Like the sickle cell may kill you when you're 25, but the malaria would kill you when you were 10. So in terms of survival of the species, it's an advantage. And the uric acid 
kind of like that. And so you have populations where they've stopped producing significant amount of uricase, which is the enzyme that destroys uric acid, basically. And in those cultures with high uricase, think the Polynesians, right? I played football against a couple of 300-pound, gigantic, muscular Polynesians. Well, almost that entire, those entire cultures are devoid of uricase. And think about it. Their culture would travel for months at a time on canoes across the Pacific Ocean. So it became incumbent upon them, their physiology, not to burn fat. And so if you have a high uric acid, you don't burn fat. And so when we're looking at things even like diet, uh, but when you're then looking at cardiovascular disease, diabetes, et cetera, if you don't handle the uric acid piece, you're pretty much doomed to failure. And again, it's not difficult. It's another one of those things that, you know, you have to change your lifestyle a little bit, but knowing what to do is not difficult. You know, you, you basically there are certain foods, you know, that you can't eat because they're high purine foods and they cause problems. But once you get that figured out, and now we even have supplements from some of the supplement companies that will directly lower uric acid levels, it's become much easier. Okay. So that was one of the things. In fact, I just, again, I'm going to put this against a backdrop of, I really like my doctor. He's a really bright guy. He's a really nice guy. And I went in a couple months ago for my annual physical and he said, okay, let's do a blood draw. Now he knows I've got gout. And I said, so are you going to run a uric acid? And he said, and he knows I have heart issues. He said, oh, I guess we could. I said, yeah, I guess we could. Right. <laughs> and so when I started seeing these things that were not these basic fibrinogen, another one, fibrinogen, you know, we know blood clots are primarily formed out of fibrin, right? They create these fibrous bundles that do blood clotting. Well, basically, mostly that's a product of fibrinogen, which is, you know, a chemical floating through the bloodstream, can easily be tested for, again, probably a five, six dollar test. And the higher your fibrinogen levels, the more likely you are to clot. Now, you know, there's a sweet spot, you know, where if you're in this sweet spot, you're going to clot enough, but not too much. Once you get above that, your uh, clotting likelihood goes up dramatically. So again, you run a fibrinogen and you run a uric acid for pennies on the dollar. I find that uh, medical doctors, and again, not functional med medical doctors and you know, or naturopaths, but your typical general practitioner, they tend to look at lab tests in a vacuum. It's like this one test, what are the ranges? Well, when you take them apart and you look at the matrix, you know, and you create the matrices of these values, there is a hundred times more information in there than medical doctors are often finding, looking for, and looking at predispositions, platelets. Again, another thing, clotting mechanisms. And there's a sweet spot between 220 and 280. Well, if you look, most of the standard labs will say 400, 450, even 500 up to those levels is normal. Once you get over 280, the curve really starts to shoot up. And in fertility, once you get over that level, you see a much higher rate of miscarriage. And I've actually had to print things out to give to my patients. You know, it's like, well, I don't know why. I do. And my answer is, I don't know why your doctor's not telling you this, because I don't, right? Maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't think it's important. I don't know. But I think it's important, and I want you to know about it. 
And so again, looking at these pretty simple tests, again, you're going to get, if you're going to get a blood draw, you don't even notice that extra half a vial coming out to test those. And again, the cost is incredibly low. So why not do them? And so, and there are a few others, you know, that I highly recommend, but those are the, probably the big three for people with cardiovascular issues. Okay. Wait a minute. I, I think I just heard you. So we had uric acid, fibrinogen, platelets. Now platelets is already included. But you want to look at the specific number. So a CBC, a complete blood count is $7. Okay. So it, it's amazing that in my mind that they're not run more often by doctors, but the whole thing is $7 and that includes platelets. And then you've got a few dollar add on for fibrinogen and uric acid. And so again, helping acupuncturists be aware of that, like these simple, simple things. Also like with um, pre-diabetes, the numbers I, I don't agree with uh, in terms of the kind of standard numbers. But one of the things is you can't always tell pre-diabetes from the numbers that doctors are using. So we'll use some other numbers, one called C-peptide, and then we'll measure insulin levels. And that can give you a hint way, way before the hemoglobin A1C and the uh, glucose levels are out of, out of range. And so the first part of the course is what I call bedside. Well, actually, the first part, I think, is the labs and looking at what, you know, what do these mean, like the basic, basic labs, and then a couple like uric acid, et cetera, that you might want to check. And so kind of looking at those issues. Hang on a second. We'll get to that second part. I, I want to get this before it slips out of my mind, this uric acid thing. Yeah. This sounds like a kind of damp heat. This is like an indicator. Oh my God. It's it. Give me a high five. It is damp heat. Yes, absolutely. Because what it does. So one of the things I talk about is a topic about endothelial damage. You know, the, the one cell lining, right, of the blood vessels and how that gets damaged. Well, you know, we know now, you know, if, if in any form of semi-alternative medicine, that that's really one of the keys. It's what's happening to that endothelium. But was, what wasn't discovered until the 1960s is there's a lining inside of that called the glycocalyx. And the glycocalyx is this incredible system. I don't know if you can only see it now, but they discovered it with electron microscopes. And it looks like a forest of kelp kind of waving in the wind. And that is what protects the endothelium. So if that's functioning correctly, it captures the viruses, it captures the bacteria, it protects from the uric acid, which will just burn, burn basically the endothelium because it's acid, right? And so it's the protectant. And when that wears away, when that gets damaged, that's when you can get all the negative factors and then you'll start getting calcium and cholesterol buildup, et cetera. But if you keep that glycocalyx healthy, that'll keep the endothelium healthy. And then you don't have to worry about all that crap, right? One of the things that interested me for a long time is why is it that someone can have, say, a 90% blockage of a coronary artery and yet all of the other coronary arteries are perfect? So if it were truly just a cholesterol problem, a systemic problem, why wouldn't it affect all the arteries in the same way in the heart? But that isn't generally, I mean, there's some, but you can, I have so many patients 
who come in and they'll have a 90% blockage in one artery and all the rest are looking perfect. So that got me to thinking about what's really happening here to damage that. And you're right, it's damp heat, damp heat. Does your poker playing and capacity to understand patterns play into this? Because I'm, we're sitting here and having this conversation. We're taught that like cholesterol, for example, is a systemic issue. And you bring up, okay, someone's got a 90% blockage in one, pretty much okay everywhere else. Wait a minute. Right? Right? If it's system, what it's like, why isn't it everywhere? John, until this moment in having this conversation with you, I hadn't paused to consider that myself. But I'm, pa- I'm thinking about it right now. Like, well, yeah, why is that? Isn't that curious? Isn't it worth at least asking the question? Yeah, right? At least asking the question. That's really, to me, the whole point, right? Like even if someone comes in, you know, I had a kid come in and he had tremors. He's like 16, 17, came in with his mom and I questioned him. And it became pretty clear that they would be diagnosed as essential tremors. His dad had them, et cetera, et cetera. And so he thought we were done. And I said, yeah, okay, this is probably what's going on. But why now? Why this week? Never in your life before. Why are those tremors hitting now? And sure enough, we tested him and he had very incredibly early stage Epstein-Barr mononucleosis, right? It was funny, Michael, you'll appreciate this. So I tested him and I said, you know, he's, he's got mono. And they said, what should I do? I said, well, first go back and tell his doctor, see what she, you know, has to say. So it was really funny. She, they go in and they said, you know, my son has mononucleosis. And the doctor said, well, how do you know that? And she said, well, his acupuncture did this test, did this test. And she looks at it and goes, yeah, he does. And the, the mom says, well, what should we do? She said, I've never caught mononucleosis or Epstein-Barr this early. Go back and let him do it. <laughs> right? So it was like... You know, they're always catching it a stage later, right? And as we know, the earlier you can catch any problem, the better off you are, right? So, the, but that was kind of funny. I don't know. I, I appreciated her honesty, right? We never catch this here. I have no idea what to do. <laughs> yes. Well, and what a great question too. Okay, your dad's got this, you've got it, but like, why now? Right. You're 16, Maybe that would show up in your 40s. Yeah. And why this week, right? And why this week? Yeah. Such a great question. Why now? I'm going to have to add that in. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. It's actually one of my favorite things when I look at conditions, because you'll see all this stuff, right? And particularly when I'm doing a lot of labs and it's like, okay, why now? Why is this showing up now? What else? What else is happening in their life, right? And of course, you're going to ask this, have you changed your diet? Have you changed your exercise, et cetera? But it really reinforces that for me, that we need to see why now. All right. So back to the cardiovascular, we just talked about damp heat with uric acid, the uh, fibrinogen, I'm going to learn how to pronounce it, fibrinogen. It's like a foreign language, fibrinogen. It's like learning Chinese. Got to say it over 20 times, fibrinogen. That sounds kind of like a blood stasis sort of indicator. Blood stasis. Sorry, I get so excited, right? I mean, I'm starting now to see some of the kind of 
talking head, uh, functional medical doctors that have websites and are getting information out are now starting to talk a lot. And this is all, this is very recent about sticky blood. And we know it's all sticky blood. You know, Jan Desheen with aging and blood stasis, you know, and basically said the proximate cause of illness and death is blood stasis, right? People don't die in diabetes from high blood sugars. That causes their blood to get thick and sticky, but they really die of the blood stickiness or blood stasis problems. So is it back to leeches for us? Well, you haven't met Molly, our little pet leech. Yeah, I'll introduce you if you get to my office sometime. We don't actually use it on patients. We got a couple leeches just to play around with, and they're adorable, by the way. Don't use them on my patients. <laughs> but have you ever seen any of the videos about leeches being used after hand surgery? I've heard about it. I've not watched it. Mind-blowing, because it's so hard to clear the blood stasis out of the hands because of the microvasculature. And the hand can stay swollen for a very long time, which, of course, opens it up to infection and other problems. 12 hours of leeches, hand looks perfect. Like I said, we just keep them around for pets. (laughs) They don't bark. It's all good. Yeah, that's right. They're quiet. That's right. They're they're well-behaved. And so, yes, you hit on it. Michael, it's all a blood stasis problem. When I'm going through all of this cardiovascular stuff, you know, I remember I was teaching endocrinology class and I go through two days of endocrinology and I said, and first test them for anemia. If they have anemia, just throw everything else here out the window and treat the anemia first. And it's kind of like that with the cardiovascular stuff. It's like, yeah, you're going to do all these tests. You're going to check all this stuff and check for blood stasis because that's probably the issue with all of these. But I got to tell you, you know how when you teach, it forces you to go back in and take a deeper dive, right? And so the first part, as I mentioned, is more of the labs and a variety of testing. The second part is really the physical exam, which is really quite different than what we do in a physical exam. And then, well, let's see, I'll, I'll skip the physical exam at this point. But when you're looking at this blood stasis issue, there's so many things that we see that indicate blood stasis. And I don't think we take it seriously enough sometimes when we're new. You know, and one of the things in going back and restudying this, it's like I was the third part of the course is on more Chinese-based stuff, kidney, heart, heart yang deficiency, heart chi deficiency, heart blood deficiency. And it was interesting. I'm I'm doing heart yang deficiency and I just kind of say, yes. This is death. This is heart attack, right? And I think we kind of underplay that, that this is the medicine that the Chinese had. And if someone had a heart attack or they had angina, this is the medicine that, that we used. And because we're not usually treating that severe a case, we tend to overlook how severe it is, like a kidney yang, heart yang deficiency. I mean, that's life or death in hours, minutes, heart blood stasis. That could be death in, in, in a few minutes, right? And so I don't know that we take it seriously enough. And that's one of my reasons for doing it. Yeah. Well, you know, I think in some ways, fair enough, because when people are in an extreme episode, they're not coming to see us, right? They're rightly, hopefully, in an ambulance on the way to a hospital. That said, 
I suspect there's a lot that we can do before they land in that ambulance to help them not land in that ambulance. You were talking about that there's things that we can see and, and attend to, but we just, it's like we see it, but maybe we don't look at it or understand it or see how it might really be involved with the heart. What are some of the things that we could attend to in our clinic that we can, that we probably already note, but maybe we should be thinking heart as well? Well, certainly pulse taking. And again, I think that's such an art. I mean, I think it's just the potential to be a great pulse taker is just life-changing for patients. And I don't consider myself a great pulse taker. I like my pulse taking, but I've worked with people that blow my socks off. And it's like, holy shit, you can feel that in there? And it's been great for me because then they'd show me and I could feel certain pulse characteristics too. But certainly pulse pulse taking. One of my favorites that I talk about in the course, we talk a lot about blood deficiency also, but there's, there are like 200 different forms of anemia. Any of those could fit into blood deficiency, you know, if you want to kind of shoehorn some of them. But really, when you feel someone's pulse and it basically is vacuous, there ain't nothing there. That's going to be a case of hypovolemia. There actually isn't enough blood in the blood vessels. And I think we overlook that sometimes because that can be a very dangerous situation. You get someone with severe adrenal fatigue or an older person who, particularly if they're on blood pressure medications, often you feel that vacuous pulse. And I will ask them, do you get dizzy when you stand up? 95% of the time, oh yeah, yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to pass out. And then I'm cautioning them, right? about what to do so they don't fall and hit their head and, and kill themselves. And fall down and break their hip. Exactly. And I think that sometimes gets overlooked more than it should. And so we do several tests around that uh, to see if it's more kind of looking at potential causation for that, right? And what's one of the things that's, that's shown up post, or not post, but with or post-COVID uh, is a huge increase in POTS, right? Positional orthostatic tachycardia, where people, they stand up and their blood, their uh, heart rate just goes right through the roof. And, or dysautonomia, where they stand up. I've noticed this in my clinic. Yeah. And their blood pressure just drops out. And so those are much more common now. And so I test almost everybody for those. Uh, I'll do Raglan's test, right? Have them lie down, take their blood pressure, have them stand up and take their blood pressure again at one, two, and three-minute intervals to see how it's responding. And I'm seeing 10 times more problems than I was seeing five years ago. It's a real issue. And then working with that, the other thing I see certainly post-COVID, and I include some vaccine issues in there also, is microclotting. There's so much microclotting, and it gets missed in the Western medical establishment. There are some countries in the world, South Africa was doing it, New Zealand was doing it, where if someone gets hospitalized, even for an hour for COVID, they're giving three different oral anticoagulant medications to take home with them. They're usually, uh, if they're in the hospital, they're put on heparin. And then when they're released, they're given three other oral anticoagulants. And their readmission rates are dramatically lower than they are in the U.S., and so when I get a patient that's coming in, you know, long COVID, post-COVID, et cetera, I'm really hitting the blood stasis. 
And, you know, usually you'll see the very significant sublingual vein stagnation, right? Things like that. Sometimes a lot of shortness of breath, sometimes, you know, discomfort in the chest. And I will do a D-dimer test, D-dimer, D-I-M-E-R, which is the most direct test for blood clotting. Doctors usually use it for deep vein thrombosis when they suspect that, and they'll run the D-dimer because it detects the breakdown of blood clots. That one's a little more expensive. It's about 50 bucks. Yeah, but, but it could save your dang life. Oh my God. Yeah. I've had several patients who, you know, have complained about a variety of different aches and pains in different areas. And I'll do kind of my in-office uh, testing and then send them in for a D-dimer and then say, yeah, you're not flying to New York this weekend. Put it off a week and let's get rid of these blood clots. The, the last time I read the number of deaths from deep vein thrombosis after airplane flights was 100,000 a year. So you don't hear much about that because it would ruin the travel industry, but it's really not that uncommon. And I've had several spouses of patients of mine who passed away actually midair from uh, deep vein thrombosis or after they landed. And so I'm really careful about that. Again, it's an easy test. It's a quick blood draw, about 50 bucks. And you can then see, and I had a lot of patients that came to see me from New York early on in COVID. And for some reason, and I don't know why this is, they all had microclotting, pretty severe. And when we treated that, they got better fairly quickly. Okay. You're in California. You're talking about blood tests. Like, oh yeah, I just ordered them up a blood test. Can you order blood work in California as part of being an acupuncturist? It's a gray area like everything else in California is. If you call the state board, they will not answer you. If you read the documentation from the attorney general, it makes it clear to me that we can and should order blood tests. It says we can order any test that we need to assist with our diagnosis. And they specifically mention blood tests, x-rays, et cetera. So you can do that? Well, again, we don't know for sure because I have my patients calling the state board and the state board just refuses to give them an answer. How do they get the blood test? Do you send them to their doc or? No, yeah, no, the, the labs will order it. They assume we can order them. Whereas in other states like New York, et cetera, no, you can't do that. No, I, I mean, I can't here. Where are you, by the way? St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, all right. There's a John Neters in St. Louis, Missouri. He's an MD. But when I pull up, you know, check out my name occasionally, it's like, oh, this guy's really sharp. Thank goodness. <laughs> in St. Louis. Oh, I, I should probably check him out. You know, if you Google Michael Max, you'll find either me or the game character. There's a like, computer game Street Fighter dude named Michael Max. All right. All right. <laughs> sometimes I'm at the top of the Google. Sometimes he's at the top. But anyway, I just want to get back to the, to the blood test for a moment. So it sounds like you can order those and you do order those for your patients. I'm not able to do that here in beautiful St. Louis, but something that I found, and this is just, you know, all y'all's out there that might want your patients to get a certain blood test, but you can't order it. There are websites now where any person can go and order their own dang blood work. Yes. And you can just order it because you want it. Oh yeah. There's lab tests online. There's life extension. Yeah. Life Extension's been doing it for a while. Yeah, it's fascinating. They can order their own, but you can't order it. You know, it's all the game. It's it's a bit of a game. And look, 
as long as my patients can get the information that they need, I'm happy. Well, yeah. And, you know, Chinese medicine has been treating without that. And, and I get this discussion with my students all the time. It's like, why do you need that stuff? I say, I don't. Well, you stick me out in the jungle somewhere and I'll get very good results because I do Chinese medicine. And what we do is awesome. It's cool. I said, but I want every edge I can get. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. And, you know, I find it's very helpful for the patients as well, because just the way we are here in the West, we're so used to looking at tests, they mean something. It gives it a kind of reality. Yeah, it does. And so patients will pay more attention. So if I'm talking to them about their diet and, well, you know, maybe eat these foods or not eat these foods because maybe you've got a little extra uric acid and that might be why you're holding on to some weight. I'm seeing this damp heat, got this inflammation running around. I could talk to I'm blue in the face, but I've learned not to talk to I'm blue in the face because it's just fatiguing. But yeah, if we can get a, a test and the test says, yeah, it's a little bit elevated. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe not gout elevated, but elevated. Elevated. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I, Catherine and I just published a book called The Sweet Spot, where we actually go through those values. So in functional medicine circles, naturopathic circles, you'll see different ranges than the standard ranges. But I, like I think most people, just kind of accepted those. It's like God said, these are the ranges and I'll use them. And then I got inquisitive. And so Catherine and I, I went through hundreds of research articles and then she is very disciplined and wrote everything up. And we've looked at the curves on all of these most of them have a U-shaped curve, and there's a sweet spot at the bottom, like hemoglobin A1C for blood sugars. If you're between 5.0 and 5.2, that's perfect. As you start going up or down, right? Either way, the mortality increases. And so we publish those actual charts and the research I've gone through and kind of edited and pointed out what I think is important about each of these research studies. And so it's kind of fun now, Michael. It's like my patients say, well, I don't know about this. I said, well, here's our book. Check it out. And they go, oh, you wrote a book? <laughs> so it's kind of fun. But it's that same kind of thing, right? It's in black and white. They can see it. They trust Western lab tests. And the thing I find as important for my patients 
it's important for their spouses and significant others. Like I would run tests on adrenal fatigue and people come back and you can see why they can't get off the couch. I mean, they just, there's nothing left. They're just yin, yang, everything deficient. And, uh, but their spouse didn't quite get it. It's like, well, just will yourself through it. So I'd run the labs, which are in black and white, and then their partner could kind of get it. This is normal. This is your wife. She should not ever do dishes for the rest of her life. Hint, hint, right? <laughs> Give her a break. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's helpful too because we as practitioners now have a baseline as well. It's a very objective baseline. We can do whatever treatment we're doing, go back and retest. How do things look? It should show up in the blood. Yes, absolutely. It's exactly the case. And I have patients, so, the, you know, I'll run into, so how are, how's my fibrinogen now? It's awesome, dude. It's awesome. You know, you can fly, you can do all this stuff. It's great. And so, you know, and, and it's like, as you know, one of the things wonderful about our practices is people largely due to our questioning become much more aware of themselves and of their body and of their health, right? They know they're going to go in and see you and you're going to ask them questions. How's your sleep? How are your bowel movements? Whatever it is. And so they want, they want to fix those before they come see you. So they become much more aware. And I find that's true with the labs too. It's like, okay, you know, I'm not going to have that dessert because I really want my blood sugars to be in the right range. Yeah. It adds some motivation. I want to come back for a moment to the microclotting, in part because, yes, we saw early in COVID that COVID was causing that. There's some indication that vaccines may spur this in certain people as well. You know, anytime, anytime there's a spike protein around, it, it, it can affect the blood to some degree. Um, and we're just not going to get away from that, given that that's our situation. So certainly something worth looking at, looking for the microclotting. In addition to the pulse, in addition to the tongue, are there other things that you're looking for? And then from a Chinese medicine perspective, how are you treating it? Well, let me take the first piece first. You know, I hear these stories and I don't know if they were true or apocryphal of John Jong Jing, the god of herbalism, walking through the hallway on the way to the emperor. And he looked at one of the emperor's assistants and said, you need to take this formula. If you don't, in 20 years, your hair is going to fall out. You're going to die, right? And what was he seeing? I don't know. They said he had almost x-ray vision. But I find that there are so many signs on the body itself. Again, I don't have that vision. I'm quite clear of that. But there are things that I see that are real tip-offs. On the hands alone, depending on how you divide it up, there are eight to 10 different indications of cardiovascular problems. My doctor, doctors, I'm 72 years old. My doctors have never looked at my hands ever. I look at everybody's hands, right? Well, first I'm going to look on the back of their hands, right? And I'm going to look. And again, so what I don't know is were the ancients looking at all this stuff all the time and we've just forgotten I don't know what they were looking at. And so splinter hemorrhages, people will get little tiny, it looks like a splinter, that's why it's called a splinter hemorrhage, in their nail beds. And those are actually small blood clots that, are, that they're throwing. There are a variety of reasons that, why that can happen, but 
the blood vessels are tiny there in the nail beds. And so they'll get clogged there. That's like the smallest area. The only other place that I've talked to patients where they can see them is in men on the scrotum, where the blood vessels are right at the surface and very tiny. And they can see, and they describe it as being very trippy, that you can actually see the little blood clots there. In the fingernails, it just looks like a little splinter. And so you can kind of date them a little bit, right? Like if someone, like I had a guy recently and I said, boy, you've got a lot of splinter hemorrhages. And I started questioning him. He says, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, I had surgery two months ago. Okay. Well, he was post-surgically throwing some clot, some line. Looking at discolorations under the nails or in the nails, looking what are called Terry's lines or Mies lines, which can be signs of certain types of heavy metal poisoning or kidney disorders. And so then you'll see with Mies lines alternating dark and light lines, which is actually in the tissue. And Terry's lines are similar, but it's just one line down toward the tip of the nail. And then I'm looking, it's called the shamrock window here, looking to see if there's any clubbing. And when you look on Wikipedia or any of these other sources, when they talk about like nail clubbing and you look at a picture, it's like, oh my God, that's horrible. Nobody could miss that. But it's gradations. If you catch it at the beginning, it's not going to look like that. It's going to be much less. And then Bose lines, which are horizontal in the nail bed itself. And so that's going to be a line. And I always have to ask uh, patients, do you, have you worn fake nails recently? Because that'll do the same thing. But they'll get a horizontal line. And that's indicative that there's been some very serious health problem at some point in time. And usually when I question people, they'll say, oh yeah, you know, my brother and my father both passed away at the same time and I was so depressed or I had a heart attack or something. And basically the body in its infinite wisdom is saying, hey, I have enough energy to keep you alive, but I don't have enough energy to keep you alive and grow fingernails. And then when you flip the hands over, myocarditis and pericarditis can show up as different types of discolorations on the palms of the hands. There's something called Janeway lesions and ocellar nodes. And then I'm also going to check, you know, the connective tissue to see, you know, if they're developing any connective tissue there. So those are some of the things that we're going to obviously pale nail beds and all the different color nail beds that we can run into. I will look at the ears. They've gone back and forth kind of arguing whether having the ear creases were a sign of potential cardiovascular problem. The I think the jury has come down on the side that yes, it can be a sign, as well as skin tags and the, the xanthalasia, as they call them, the kind of yellowish white deposits around the eyes. And so looking at those, those are all conditions that can be hints. Again, these are none of them are definitive, but they're all hints to cardiovascular problems. The corneal arcus, where you get the white circles around the, um, the iris, which is from a lot of cholesterol mm -hmm. buildup, right? And so just, you know, there are tons of little things that you can look at. Uh, Jimmy Chong does a great little video presentation looking at the ear and looking at different locations on the ear for cardiovascular potential stuff. And so I'm not going to talk about that much, very much, because he does a better job. I look, but I don't explain it as well as he does. All right. That's great having all these different things to look for. One of the amazing things, one of the wonderful things about the kind of medicine we do, we have learned 
that you can look at the body and the body can really talk to you if you know what you're looking for. And the more you look, the more you can learn to look. And, and the more that you see, the more it's easier to notice that as well. So those are all wonderful and really helpful. Now, in terms of treating microclotting, what do you like to do? Some of it will depend a little on the severity, but typically I'm going to use proteolytic enzymes, natokinase to, you know, which I can, I, this isn't obviously what happens, but I consider it like Teflon coating and it keeps the blood from clotting as easily. It moves better. The Japanese populations, they eat lots of natomiso. They just, they live longer. They have fewer cardiovascular risk, et cetera. So it's magnificent. And then I will use seratiopeptidase or serapeptase. They're similar. And that's really the enzyme that silkworms use to burn themselves out of their cocoons. And so, you know, as you know, that silk is stronger than steel by weight. And, but it's dead. It's dead protein. I did not know it was stronger than steel by weight. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. And so the silkworm wouldn't be able to get out. And so it has an enzyme that it secretes that will only destroy dead protein. If it destroyed living protein, it would kill the silkworm. But so they squirt it on the silk and it just dissolves it. It will do the same thing in the human body with fibrin deposits. Same thing. It's dead protein and once it becomes a clot. And so the serapeptase will just break it down. I have had patients who had clots, literally, because they had to be sedentary for some period of time from their medial malleolus, their ankle bone, to above their knees on both legs in the saphenous veins, which are very superficial. And they were debating whether to strip them in the hospital or put them on heparin. They didn't know what they were going to do. In the meantime, I put them on natokinase, serapeptase, and an herbal formula, which was a derivative of Shuifu Juyusan, you know, that we use all the time. I mean, it was strongly derivative, but basically that and some B vitamins, because I determined from their labs that they were B12 and folate deficient, which can lead to blood clotting also. One week, they went back, the clots were gone. The doctors, of course, were totally tripped out. And of course, he said, he told them what he did and they go, yeah, 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 whatever. But this is a miracle. And he, so, but anyway, it's magnificent, that combination. I have so many patients that I think have just, it's been nearly, it's been a lifesaver for them, including me, because I had severe blood stasis and now I have almost none. I, my sublingual veins are 95% clear uh, and I attribute it to that. Now, what about people that have varicosities, you know, especially lower down? I'm thinking of a number of my patients that got varicosities like from spleen six on down, many like really along the kidney channel. And, you know, and they're those deep, dark purple, they're small, they're little spidery things, but they're kind of knotted. Yeah. Yeah. Those are scary actually to me. And so I, those are people that I would doubt. I mean, one, I would probably try to talk them into using compression stockings, right? Not my favorite thing, but, you know, at least temporarily to get, keep things moving and not pool there. And then I would probably use pretty much the combination I just mentioned. I would, the other thing is a lumbrokinase, which is uh, earth dragon in Chinese medicine. It's the earthworms. Earthworm. Yep. Dilong. Yeah. Magnificent stuff. 
magnificent stuff. Yeah, which is what we use it for. Yeah. That's what we like to use it for. Yeah. Throw some leeches on it. You're all set, Michael. <laughs> well, you happen to have some in your clinic, you lucky dog. Uh, so that, and by the way, that reminds me, the first, one of the things I will do with patients, so everything I talked about so far, I'm usually going to do in my office as I'm talking to them. And then I'm going to take them into the exam room, listen to their heart, do what their uh, palpate their glands, et cetera. But I'm also going to check their ankles, just what you're saying. I'm looking for all of those blood flow issues, but I'm also going to palpate the saphenous veins, which are right in there along that area. And they're very superficial. And I find that tends to be the first place that I can feel blood clots. And so it will feel like right along there, spleen, liver, in that area, you'll feel it and it's under the skin and it feels kind of like a pencil. And you shouldn't be able to feel the saphenous veins. You can only feel them if they're congested. And so I'll often check those just to make sure. And if they have some kind of stagnation in there, these various supplements plus the... Uh... I use the supplements I talked about. I'll put them on a PEMF mat, a pulsed electromagnetic field, which is miraculous at getting uh, blood stasis moving. And then I may do infrared or red light therapy, which will also help with inflammation. But I love PEMF, pulsed electromagnetic fields. Do you want me to talk about that at all? Well, you know, I was I was gonna I was gonna say that sounds like a wacky thing, but we're acupuncturists, so what's wacky? Yeah, right. Well, you know, I did a ton of research on that. I mean, I don't do research; I read research, right? But I read a ton of research before I really got involved. And I had a friend that was a Beamer distributor, B E M E R, which is like the big company with pulsed electromagnetic fields. You know, I went to a lot of their stuff, read a lot of their information, read a lot of their background science, and I got pretty impressed by it. And so then I started doing more research and it turns out, or it seems to turn out to me, I don't know if this is true, but to the best of my discernment, working hypothesis, uh, human beings developed in a niche, in an environmental niche where there were basically two primary electromagnetic fields. There was the Schumann frequency, which is ba the basic kind of frequency of the planet, 7.83 hertz. It varies a little bit, but it's around 7.83. And then the solar frequencies, which are over 30, and those vary a little bit more. But the interesting thing that the Beamer people talked about, and I, I believe the research supported it, is that, well, let me digress just a hair. Thomas Cowan, wrote a book called Cosmic Heart, Cosmic Heart. I, I read a few pages into that and just like, it's one of those duh moments. And he points out that if you go to a hydraulic engineer and ask him if a pump that big can pump a semi-viscous fluid through 70,000 miles of pipes, the hydraulic engineer will laugh at you. And that's what we've been told the heart does, that it's pumping that several pints, usually around six pints of fluid through a, in a typical adult, about 70,000 miles of pipe, some of them very small, very tight. And he, he was just laughing. And he said, obviously, this is ridiculous. He said, indeed, if the heart stops beating, you die. But he said, most of the pumping 
is done by the arteries. That's why they're so muscular, right? And it all made sense. So I started looking at it and it seems accurate. And so you get what's called vasomotion and a certain number of times per second, around uh, 10 times per minute, roughly, in a really healthy individual, the arteries pump. Who knew, right? I never learned that. And so they pump. The arteries pump on their own. Well, being stimulated, right? So the heart does what it does, kind of gets things moving. And then the arteries are pumping kind of like a peristaltic action and moving the blood through. Uh, and he pointed out that the blood moves at very different frequencies at different part of the body, like it moves much faster in the arteries. It moves almost not at all in the capillaries. So how is it that it moves really fast and then stops and then starts moving again, right? Again, it's that how could this happen if it was the heart pumping at one, you know, it's that one thing that's moving at all. Wouldn't it kind of tend to say at the same speed? I don't know if that's true, but it made me think, right? Yeah. Well, I, I can see capillary beds, you know, they're much smaller. So things would maybe slow down because you've got more resistance. Yeah, absolutely. And that's all of that stuff. Certainly, certainly I think plays into it and is possible. And what he was saying is that that vasomotion, though, is the primary mover of the blood. So there's this other thing going on. Yeah, that it is stimulate. And here's the thing that's like the woo-woo part is I haven't gotten to the woo-woo yet, right? And so he said that the Schumann frequency is what stimulates those large arteries to do their vasomotion. And again, that made perfect sense since... However long human beings have been on the planet, that's what we've been exposed to. Again, I do not know if this is true, but it made sense to me the more and more I looked at the physics of it. And he said the solar frequency is the frequency that stimulates the little tiny arterioles to pump. Uh, and he said, so if you're getting both of those frequencies, which you would be if you were out in the woods somewhere it, where you weren't being interfered with, by 3G, 4G, 5G, all the other stuff that we're exposed to that can cause interference frequencies. He said, if you're out where you're just getting those two, then your blood flows much better. And so that's the theory in, in my understanding, limited understanding, behind Beamer and those PEMF machines. Now, all I know is that when I put my blood stasis patients on there, their blood stasis gets better. If they have high blood pressure, the blood pressure drops. If they have normal blood pressure, it doesn't. It stays where it is. The uh, signs and symptoms that I see of blood stasis seem to get better. They seem to feel better. And so does it work? I don't really know. It's not making them worse. And they think it makes them feel better. And I think it makes them feel better. So I do it. To answer your question, that's one. I wouldn't just do that. But as long as they're in my clinic, we're going to stick them on one of those beds. They're laying down anyway. So you do so you do this while you're doing acupuncture? Yes. Okay. And it's got a, a biomat on it, so it's nice and warm and it's, you know, doing all these groovy things. They love it. They just love it. But my only problem, Michael, is in the winter is getting people to leave. I was gonna say they don't want to get off. Can I just stay for another hour? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I got one more thing to ask you. Actually, I got a ton of things to ask you, but we're going to need to land this plane here in a few minutes. You mentioned, I think you mentioned red light. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to talk to you just a little bit about this because I recently found out here in St. Louis 
there's a company that makes red light beds. Yeah. And I actually paid him a visit recently. It's, it's, it's wild down there. These people are interesting folk. But I don't understand anything about this, you know, other than they're making these beds and, you know, they're keen on it. And, you know, I had, I had one go in it, but, you know, I'm not even sure what to think about it. I think I probably need to have like 10 goes in it uh, before I make any decisions about does it make me feel different. I don't even know how to begin to think about red light. Well, think about this. We know that one of the most healing things on the planet is sunlight, right? Now, it's also can be quite damaging, but ultimately, there's so many biological processes that are stimulated by the sun, sunlight. And the sunlight is broken down into different frequencies, right? You've got this whole range of frequencies. Right. Most of it we can't see. Exactly. Most of it we can't see. And some people that are way smarter, brighter than I am, claim to have studied this stuff. And there's some pretty, I think, decent research out there at what the different frequencies seem to stimulate. And red light seems to be very good at lowering inflammation. Uh, you'll see a lot of the dermatological centers where they're doing facial needling and things like that. Like we have someone in my clinic who does microneedling. So lots of little tiny needles, right? And at the end, people's faces are really red, right? They've got hundreds of needles uh, that have, have hit them, very shallow. And if you leave them alone, it'll take a couple days for that redness to go away. Because we get people that have come in from other practitioners. If my practitioner puts the red light on their face, it goes away within a couple hours. So something's happening there. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So again, you know, there's some pretty good information out there. All right. I'll go continue my experiments with uh, the red light folks down here in Missouri. It's, it's cool. They've got this whole little, I mean, they make them here. And, uh, and I got to tell you, the guy, and he's, he's about your age. He's in his early 70s. And he's a character because, you know, people that work with wild stuff, they're characters. I'm talking to one right now. <laughs> yeah. They get buried deeply into the geek, geek world. Yes, they do. And I got to tell you, this guy's skin, oh, he's got the skin of like a 48-year-old. A healthy 48-year-old. It was like, wow, that guy looks really good. So anyway, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm doing my own experimentation. All right, great. Well, I want to wind this down, but I've, I've got this new thing I've been doing to wind it down with just kind of like a palate refresher after having had a nice tasting of different flights of wines. We're going to do a little lightning round. Just some very, very quick questions, short answers. Sound good? Yep. All right, here we go. First, John Neeters, what are you reading right now? Drop acid. <laughs> we were just talking about that. Yeah, and it's on my list now too. Thank you very much. I enjoy David's other books about, about inflammation. Yeah, um, I think he's on to something. Okay, if you had the capacity to do so, would you rather travel to the future or would you rather travel to the past? Past. Because? I'm blown away by what was known in medical fields in particular, I'm thinking of, and I would love to see how these brilliant practitioners practiced. Zhang Zhongjing, to spend a day hanging out with that dude, right? That's what I, the future I see as being really cool and fun and gadgety and stuff, but the past, I love the freedom of gadgetry 
and how people were so tuned in. Freedom of gadgetry. Let's put that on a t-shirt. Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite snack? Oh, anything salty and, and uh, crunchy. So right now I'm doing these little crunchy crackers from Trader Joe's. The rice crackers. Salty and crunchy. Yeah, man. Pretzels are it for me. <laughs> All right. What do you think is maybe one of the most helpful things for a new practitioner to know? That you know enough. A lot of them, I'll try to get them to like do talks and things and they'll go, I don't know enough. And I'll say, then you need to go back to school. You've got a master's degree in this. Go out and spread the gospel. My entire practice literally has come from spreading the gospel of Chinese medicine because I love it. Well, the students love it too. Get out there and talk to everybody about it. That's the main thing I would say is trust that you know enough and that you're going to help people pretty much in any conversation you have with them. Okay. Go be an evangelist. Right? It's like I my radio show, I've never really talked about myself. There's so much to talk about the medicine. Now, some people come and see me. Okay, that's fine. Sometimes they go see somebody else. That's fine, too. I just love the medicine. It'll keep you young, my friend. Yeah. Well, John Neeters, this has been a real delight. Thank you so much for taking a little time to hang out today. Well, I can't thank you enough. You were, just like Jenny said, you're a very, very fun interviewer, and you hit a lot of my hot spots here. So thank you very much. All right. Until next time, then. Take care. John is of the age that, of course, he had a career before finding his way into acupuncture, which means he brings along other skills and perspectives to the endeavor of medicine. Medicine is more than a keen diagnosis and competent treatment. It helps to be able to discern anomalies, keep your cool in a moment of anxiety-producing pressure, and have a mind that has the ability to stay flexible and open in the midst of routine and protocol. Having experience with other life paths gives us a depth in seasoning that you don't get if medicine is the only thing that you studied. Like counterpoint herbs in a formula, it's helpful to have success in other and perhaps quite divergent areas of life because medicine is rarely by the book. It helps to have a knack for piecing things together and gaining an understanding that comes from a diversity of experience. I can only begin to imagine how counting cards in blackjack might help with remembering herbs or point functions, how high-stakes poker would develop pattern discernment, and working in the high-stress world of real estate transactions, it would help you to keep your calm as patients navigate illness and the uncertainty that it brings. This conversation reminds me that to be effective as a practitioner, it's helpful to be able to call on more than just our medical training. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, 
That's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.